Now, we are committed here, as most of you know, to expository preaching and to exegetical preaching. Expository means that we simply proclaim the Word of God. We, we set forth and expose the Word of God so that His people can hear it and understand it. And when I say we preach exegetically, it means we read out of the text and we do everything possible not to read ourselves and our own ideas into the text. So we have a difficult text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because we are committed to expository preaching, we can't skip it. And it is actually the practice, I think, of a lot of pastors to preach topically and to preach on the things that preach well and to maybe uh, skip over or give lesser treatment to texts that make us scratch our heads and make us wonder and um, take a little bit of or a lot of hard work to understand. So this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, especially because of the the reaction that it receives in our own culture, um, I think is one that is not treated often and it is not treated well in many churches. But we must do it because here we are. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we'll read this text and then we'll ask the Lord's help in proclaiming it and receiving it. And we will only read the first 16 verses. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll start at verse 2 because uh, 1 is actually part of the previous uh, uh, line of thought. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not dependent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now you can probably see why this is not exactly the most popular passage to preach, because there is just so, so much that, first of all, it seems a little bit hard to understand, and then there is sort of a cultural understanding that this seems, it seems way out from the way people are thinking today. But we're going to see, again, as we have all through the book of Corinthians, how very relevant even this passage is to us and how all of God's Word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you that you have created us in your image. And your image is a, a composite of our thoughts and our emotions and our intellects and our wills and Lord you created us when you created us in your image you created us male and female and yet you set out an order in your creation and though we are together we are your image you have assigned roles to men and women and you have taught us all through the scripture, Old Testament and New, that men and women are 
very different creatures with de very different roles in worship, in uh, authority, and in how we treat one another. So I pray that you would help us uh, just to think clearly and to think carefully about what your word says, what the Apostle Paul here says to the Corinthian believers. And Lord, to be able to ascertain what parts are um, culturally specific to first century Corinth and what parts are to be applied universally throughout all ages of the church right up until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that we would receive what your word says to us. Um, and Father, knowing that your word is not determined by what we think of it or what, what uh, applies to us, it is all true. But I pray that you would, through your spirit, would ap apply it specifically in every way that it needs to be applied. And I thank you, Lord, for each brother and sister that is here. I thank you for each little child that is here and each family that is here. I thank you for those who are visiting with us today. I pray that your word, well, I don't even have to pray this because you promised this, that your word will not return empty, but that it will accomplish exactly what it is sent out to do. And we look to you for this, Lord Jesus, uh, because it is your word, it is your sword. And we ask, Lord, that we would be willing recipients and that your word would do its work in our hearts through your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to read something that uh, if we were living in the first century and there were a social critic who was writing just a commentary on society, he might say something like this. We have plenty of social critics. We have Christians who will say, well, this is, this is what's wrong with our society. This is what's happening. This is where the church is falling short and so on. But if we were in the first century, and let's say John MacArthur made a social commentary, actually this is from John MacArthur, but he applied it, he just stated some facts from the first century, things that were happening. And I want you to see how very relevant um, at least the issue at the center of this passage is to us today. Women demand to be treated exactly like men and they attack marriage and the raising of children as unjust restrictions on their rights. They assert their independence by leaving their husbands and homes, refusing to care for their children, living with other men, demanding jobs traditionally held by men, wearing men's clothing and hairdos, and by discarding all signs of femininity. Sounds very current, doesn't it? And of course, we are kind of on the tail end of a, a radical feminist movement that uh, demanded all of these things, and there's almost a, a swing back toward more traditional roles. But in the middle of this, we have men wanting to become women and women wanting to become men and adopting the dress and the behaviors and the attitudes of the other. So this passage that we have before us today assumes that there is a separation in roles of men and women. There is a subordination. And by that I do, do not mean subjugation. I mean subordination. There is an order of authority that is stated by God from the very first pages of Scripture and right all on through history that is universal. And most cultures intuitively recognize the universality of this principle that there is a that God is authority over all, that the husband is under God's authority, that the wife is under the husband's authority. And you could extend that. It doesn't go in this passage, but children are under the parents' authority. So order and authority are something that are very dear to the heart of God, and they actually speak of his character. There is subordination even within the Trinity. Now, it's not... It, it has nothing to do with equality or nature or essence. But the son is, has submitted himself to the father and submits himself to the father, becoming obedient 
obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. It's a position of authority, but it is also um, acknowledging that as far as authority, not as far as nature, the Father is in charge and the Son is obedient to the Father. So we, and we have then the, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now we're going to just go through this passage and I've entitled the message, Head Coverings for Women, an Illustration of Submission with Equality. And this is what I think the world totally misses when they read scripture. The equality of men and women as created in God's image. And yet there is, I maybe should have used the word subordination though, but Paul uses submission in other passages like first, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your husband as you would submit to the Lord. And then the reflexive of that is, husband, love your, wife, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Referring to his, his sacrifice for sin, an ultimate gesture of love and of his submission to the Father. So let's try to look through uh, this passage and get a clear understanding of what's really at play here. Now first of all, I'd like us to notice in verse 2 that there is a pattern of submission that the Corinthian church is already observing. It says, now I, content, I commend you, in other words, I praise you or I compliment you, because you remember me, the Apostle Paul, in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now if you look back at the end of, or at verse 1, Paul had concluded his argument about Christian liberty with this statement, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Christ is the example, the ultimate example, and Paul is saying, I'm imitating Christ and I want you to look to me so that you have someone with flesh and blood right in front of you who is submitted to the Lord and I encourage you to imitate me. So here in the beginning of chapter 11, he says, I commend you essentially because you are imitating me. You're not doing it perfectly, otherwise I wouldn't have to write this letter. But I commend you that you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. A tradition is something that is not necessarily written down in a letter, but it is something that is brought by the apostle, perhaps matters of order of worship. And of course, later on, the apostle Paul has to explain more about this. But there are, he is saying, you're, you're doing a good job at least in certain ways, in submitting to the teaching and the example that I have given to you. When you, uh, you, want, to, when you want to deal with a difficult subject, sometimes it's important to just build the person up a little bit first and say, look, I'm not attacking you here. There is something that, is, uh, that you're doing well, and here's how we can do it better. All right, so that's just a, a little comment about the nature of the Corinthian church. We, we I think, as we've been going through this pat, chap, this, this book, and as we later go through first, Second Corinthians, we, we might tend to be rather harsh toward the Corinthians, but let's remember that they were, and they are, our brothers and sisters in Christ, beginning of chapter 1. Paul, the Apostle Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth and to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So there are brothers and sisters in Christ. They, they are present tense. We're going to see them one day in glory. And we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we share in the same kinds of struggles, maybe not identical, maybe not meat offered to idols, but issues that um, demand a, a similar response. And so this matter of head coverings is another one of those issues. All right, so the second thing that we see here in verse 3 is the principle of submission or you could call it the biblical basis for submission. And of course, in this chapter, we're talking about women covering their heads as a physical emblem or symbol of the authority over them. 
So that would be God's authority and, by extension, their husband's authority. So he says in verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now when we speak of the head in relation to our body, well, it's, it's pretty easy for us to understand that the head is where the decisions are made, the head is where our brain is located, and uh, all of our movements and all of our thoughts are basically coordinated there. But what we're talking about really is authority. And within the body of Christ, Christ is the head over every man. We, we men are all under authority. We are men who are fashioned after the nature of the first Adam who fell and who sinned, but we are created in the image of God. So we have the image of the first Adam. Christ has the image of the second Adam or the last Adam who also, though not created, is in the image of God and is also, even to this day, fully human, though in an exalted state. So there is, he's fully God, fully man. And as Christ came into the earth as a second Adam, his submission was not demonstrated through any particular symbol. We see him in pictures, and I think the pictures in, in themselves are a bit of a mistake because we don't really know what Jesus looked like, but we see him with, with a halo, and sometimes we see him with other sort of holy artifacts around him. Christ didn't need a symbol for authority. He demonstrated his authority in his actions, or pardon me, his submission. He didn't need the, a symbol of the Father's authority over him. He demonstrated his submission in actions like washing his disciples' feet, engaging in conversation and in evangelism with the Samaritan woman, and ultimately in submitting himself unto death, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So one of the things that you'll notice is absent in this passage is a symbol of authority on a man's head. And the reason for that is there, there was no symbol of authority on Christ's head. It was expressed in his actions. And for whatever reason, God did not mandate that men should have any kind of physical demonstration of their authority, or God's authority over them. So we see here that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So submission to authority, subordination, and knowing, knowing our place in God's economy, as it were, this is a very good thing, and it is a universal principle. The first point there applies particularly to the Corinthian church. The second point here applies to every Christian in every church in every time. These are things you can't get away from. The head of Christ is God. The head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. Now that's countercultural for sure. Nobody wants to recognize, or I shouldn't say nobody, but many in our culture do not want to recognize any essential difference in the roles of men and women. And as an example of this, this has nothing to do with men and women, but I had a, a conversation with a young a grade 12 student in Mydale this week and he was all excited because they were going off to a, a I think a province-wide student council um, conference and they were going to learn all kinds of things about leadership so I asked him well what position do you have on your student council And he says well we don't really have any positions we just all kinda we kinda do stuff together and I'm thinking that is the weirdest student council I've ever heard of in my life. Because we know, in fact, that any kind of a meeting, if you don't have someone who has authority to bring the meeting to order and to keep it going, nothing happens. And we just kind of flail around and pool our ignorance. So there, there is a, 
the principle for submission, of submission, I think it is easily understood if we just take a step back and think clearly. But God is ahead of, the Father is ahead of the Son, and the Son is ahead of the man, and the, the man is ahead of the a husband is ahead of his wife. That doesn't mean that Christ is not the head of the woman as well. It's just that she has someone who is particularly assigned to be Christ-like and to represent Christ to her in his behavior and his actions and his love and his sacrifice. He's right there in her life. And this is, I think, in some ways almost a gift to women, to, and not every man is godly, of course, but this is God's ideal for the Christian marriage. So understand that this principle of submission, there is nothing culturally specific about it. God is still the head of Christ. Christ is still the head of every man. And every husband is still the head of their wife. So now we get to uh, really the, the core of this where he gets into the whole matter of covering your head or not covering your head and we'll call this a portrayal of submission. It is a, a visual, in fact the whole symbol of authority was a visual demonstration of, or the, the idea of a head covering was a visual dem demonstration that this principle of submission was acknowledged by everyone in the church. So it says in verse 4, Everyone, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. So you need a little background to understand well, what's so bad about a shaved head. We see all kinds of women shaving their heads today or with the short haircuts, whatever. Uh, well, Chrysostom... An uh, early teacher within the first couple of centuries after Christ, he noted that in the culture, the Greek culture, that those who had shaved heads were considered women of ill repute or prostitutes even. It, it would just be sort of a, a symbol of it. And there was another, I can't, I don't think I'm remembering his name correctly, but another very early Greek Christian, Aristophanes perhaps, um, he had said that uh, the, when, when a woman's children had turned against her and were living in a very uh, un, un, unworthy way of her and she was disgraced by them, that that woman would shave her head out of shame. So it was, for whatever reason, it was a sign of shame for a woman to have short hair and that's why the, the apostle here uses it as, in a, as an analogy for having praying with an uncovered head it says he's saying this is it is unbecoming for a woman to pray without covering her head but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off or her hair or to shave her head let her cover her head for a man not ought not to cover his head and this is why he doesn't cover it since he is the image and glory of god he is Represented, representative of not only God's image, his uh, image which is expressed in intellect, emotion, will, character, and so on, but he is also the glory of God. God made Adam before he made Eve, and when God made Adam, he said, it is very good. And of course, later, Eve was made to complement Adam, and she was taken out of Adam, and made as a, a helper for him. But God's glory was expressed first in the image of the man. He is the image and glory of God. But look what it says next. But the woman is the glory of man. So the, image, the woman is the image of God. We know this from Genesis chapter 2. God created them male and female in the image of God created he them. So they're united in the image of God. But for some reason, the glory of God is in the man. The glory of the man is in the woman. And you can see this in, in little ways, I think. You can see it just in, if you observe marriages. And you observe how 
many men who are very successful and very well adjusted and very um, upstanding and upright in their communities, their, their glory is greatly enhanced and assisted by the loving support and by the, by the kind and selfless and generous way that their wives help them with everything. There is, there is, a, there is a, a glory there, and, and uh, this is, does not mean that a woman is not glorious, but that there is an expression. And just as men, when they lift up holy hands and, and pray, this brings glory to God. When they proclaim faithfully the word of God to the flock of God, this brings glory to God. When they live with integrity in their community, this brings glory to God. There's a picture of this in how a woman's behavior toward her husband brings glory to her husband. And this is, it's an object lesson so that we can see this. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And this is just the priority of creation. Adam was made first and then Eve. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then, this weird phrase, because of the angels. Where in the world did that come from? Like, why, why do the angels suddenly appear in this passage? Have you ever wondered about that? Do you think there are angels watching over this service right now? Angels are ministering spirits sent out to help to come to the aid of those who will inherit salvation. That's us, right? Well, it seems that angels are, in, in our time at least, are sent specifically to assist, not to rule, but to serve the church at the pleasure of God. Angels are, by nature, except for those who have fallen and rebelled against God, are by nature the most submissive creatures and would be greatly offended to see a sign of rebellion or of lack of regard for the authority of God as they would watch over a worship service. Do you think God cares about his angels? Now, they were not made in in his image as we are, and yet they were made with um, some of his qualities. They were made with intelligence. They were made with, with, with strength and, and uh, many glorious attributes. But we sometimes forget that angels are real creatures, and angels can be offended. And angels, they're part of the, the world around us, and yet we can't see them. Although sometimes we may see them, as Hebrews says, we can entertain angels unawares. So that, I think, is the best understanding. There are participants as we worship and as we carry on our lives that we don't even see. And Paul is just saying, let's, let's not offend them either. A little bit from a commentary here. Because of the angels, in order that these most submissive of all creatures will not be offended by non-submissiveness. Furthermore, angels were present at creation. Job 38.7 says that, to be witnesses of God's unique design for man and woman and would be offended at any violation of that order. So here you have the, the holy angels, the angels that are serving the church and obeying the Lord in whatever he has for them to do. They are, much, they are well aware of the rebellion of the other angels, the angels that fell. And God is concerned about his angels, as he is about us. All right, now, I, I'm going to admit that making sense of all of that is a bit difficult for me. But I want you to understand that there was a cultural backdrop to this. And you might wonder, why are we not all wearing, or why are not the women wearing head coverings? Many parts of the world, Christians of, of various uh, denominations would wear head coverings, or women would wear head, head coverings as a matter of course. And it would be considered somewhat offensive if a woman came in 
to a worship service without a head covering. If you know anything about the, the Brethren movement, it's sort of a fixture. You go into the church and you you got to have a hat on, and if you don't have a hat, they'll give you a, a doily or a handkerchief or something to put on your head. Eastern Orthodox Christians, uh, women typically cover their heads in worship, even many Roman Catholic churches. And so I believe this tradition goes far, far back, but I, I don't believe it is necessary that we continue to observe this because dress and how we dress and how we express femininity and masculinity, it is fluid. It does change over time. At one time in history, we would all be wearing dresses of one sort or another, you know, robes. And, the, you know, the pants hadn't been invented and there was no, there, there was no uh, distinction essentially in the design or at least the basic design of the clothes. Yet there would be distinguishing elements in women's clothing and men's clothing. And there was an intentional separation. The whole book of Leviticus is about separation as a picture of God's holiness. There are things that you don't belong together. Men are instructed not to wear the clothing of women, and women are instructed not to wear the attire of men, because that, that separation and that distinction is part of God's design. So I want, to, uh, I want us to just understand that even in, this, in our culture today, a woman or women covering their heads does not carry the same meaning as it did in the first century. In fact, if you were to look at our larger culture, and you'll see what's happening in France with the, the whole uh, burkini escapade on the beaches and so on, these women are they're being pressured, these Muslim women, not to wear the, their full body swimsuits at the beach, and it's, uh, it's become a big religious rights issue and so on. Well, there are cultures in the world where women cover their heads not as a mere demonstration of the husband's authority or of God's authority, but it has become, in the eyes of the world at least, a symbol of oppression. And if that's more the meaning in our, in our society, then perhaps we would do better to deal with the symbols that mean something in our society. Let's, let's move on to kind of what brings this all into perspective for us here in number four, the partnership of submission. You could also call this the equality of submission. Just because there is a willing subordination of, of a woman to a man, it throws no slight on her character, it throws no slight on her importance or her humanity or her personhood, you know, we are not very many generations away, in Canada even, from when women were not legally considered persons, when they couldn't vote and all kinds of things like that. So that, all of those are taking things to an extreme here. Here, in this verse, the Apostle reminds us of how very inter interdependent we are and essentially how equal we are as men and women. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman has made, was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Interdependence, there's another word for that, and that is women and men are complementary. Women and men are different, yet in the eyes of God, equal. According to Galatians, and I'll just read uh, Galatians chapter 3 toward the end. Give me a second to look it up. Galatians 3.26, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as, of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So as far as value, as far as personhood, as far as individuality, we are all one. There is no distinction. There is no male or female. As far as equality goes, we are saints. And there are other places in Scripture that call women as well as men saints. There is, at the end of the book of Romans, you can read Paul's accolades and, and his greetings to various Christians uh, for various roles they fulfill in, this, in the church. And many of them are women. You can read about Apollos, who was a great preacher but had inferior doctrine and he hadn't heard, learned everything about Christ. And so it was Priscilla, a woman, and her husband Aquila. Priscilla is mentioned first and together they teach him more fully the way of Christ and then he becomes a great uh, expositor of scripture that was uh, in the same league as the Apostle Paul. And there, so there are many, many other instances where the value and essential equality of of women is expressed and even we've seen this in in Corinthians it would be very customary for in the Greek culture for women to be left out of a discussion and and their, the husbands would be addressed in any in, in a sort of academic forum but the women would be secondary almost in the realm of of slaves, not really very important at all. But in 1 Corinthians, even in the matter of giving and receiving in marriage, of conjugal rights, Paul takes time to address the women and the men and to, and to, and to say the same thing to both of them, saying this is a mutual thing here. This is not just one person dominating another person. And when we think of biblical submission, it, it has nothing to do with one person dominating and controlling another person. It, it is a matter of authority and a matter of God-assigned roles. And within those roles, each lifts the other and each exalts the other and each fulfills the other for the glory of God. Men and women are complementary in every way in every way in life, but particularly in the Lord's work. They do function together as a divinely ordained team. One of the reasons that I have asked for, to take some time away from standing in this pulpit and addressing you and um, serving as your, your pastor is I feel that this area has lapsed somewhat, our teamwork through Rhonda's sickness and so on. Just, uh, we, we, we need to have a little team building time together because we serve so much better together. When we are rightly using our complementary gifts uh, for the good of each other. So there is a partnership in submission. This is not a, this is not a one way thing. This is not a license for a husband to demand a certain kind of performance or certain certain way of behavior from his wife if he's going to do ask for anything he's got to recognize that he is also under the authority of Christ and he is also bound by the example of Christ and he is also to give himself up for her and to wash her with the word so that he may present her to himself as a, as a, without blemish and without spot. So there is a partnership in submission. This is not an oppressive thing. This is how God intended it. And if you look closely, even at the natural world, and at just even the, this world is really fallen, but you can see how much better things work when men and women work together and when they're, when they're not fighting for who's going to be uh, head over the other. This is already established in Scripture. So, giving us all of these things, the Apostle Paul shows us that we have to get practical now. So the fifth and last point is the practicality of submission. He says, judge for yourselves. 
So this is what the Apostle Paul does over and over again throughout the book. He lays out his case and he says, judge for yourselves. You know, you're, you've got wisdom, you have the Holy Spirit, you've got eyes, you can see how things function or don't when people um, abandon these principles. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And I would gather that in that society, it would have been considered improper. In our society, in our culture, it is not necessarily considered improper. In fact, I've been in churches where the head covering was more of a fashion show than anything else. It, it really didn't mean anything to the women. And the way that they carried on and the way that they treated their husbands and so on, it, it, it wasn't showing any kind of... Or, or even the way that they, um, they wanted attention for themselves in the house of God. It, it didn't mean this. It didn't mean submission. So, as we meet, I think that women demonstrate submission in other ways. By not trying to uh, usurp the authority of men in teaching, for example. We had a good example of this just this week, or last week. We had a, I think a request came during our elders meeting. Um, there were a couple of ladies who wanted to uh, lead worship together. And they asked the elders, uh, is it okay if we, if we do this, if there's not a man leading? And you, think, you might think, well, what, what kind of a oppressive church is this that women can't even lead worship. Well, the point that they were getting at was that they were recognizing that they are under the authority of the elders in the church, and they didn't want to take the chance of going beyond what was permitted or what was uh, biblical or godly. Um, and so they, in, in a very gentle way, just came and asked this question. And we as elders, we, we reasoned, we said, well, we can see that this is obviously not an, an attempt of anyone to kind of uh, put themselves in a position of leadership or headship or of, uh, of a teacher in the church. And typically when people lead our singing in the church, all they do is uh, give out the, the hymn numbers and then we sing together. So it would be, it would be unreasonable to say, that, well, that is any kind of a, a position that could usurp authority. But there was... There was no head coverings, okay? There, that wasn't necessary because the attitude is there and the attitude is really what Paul is getting at. Um, a symbol does not automatically make you submissive. Something on your head, it doesn't make you submissive. It was to them though a reminder of the natural or the, of the God-ordained order. One other thing I should address here, I kind of missed this before. But the idea of praying and prophesying, those were the two instances where women were to have their heads covered. If she prays, she's to have her head covered, and if she prophesies. Let's not get, let's not get too specific about those things. Let's look at what they generally are. Prayer is people talking to God about other people. Could be other things too, but you're talking to God. It's a vertical conversation, or it's a vertical not, not necessarily a conversation. God speaks to us through his word, but it is our expressing our needs, our desires, and interceding for one another. Okay? That is prayer. People talking to God about each other. Prophecy is people talking to others about God. And that's a very broad definition. But when you speak to others about God, or in, in some cases where, like in the, the biblical prophets for God, those are the two contexts we're talking about. And in both of those contexts, later on, you, we read in 1 Corinthians, it might be 14, but where it says that the women should keep silence in the church. And if she has a question, she should go home and talk to her husband. Now that is talking about the church assembly. That is when the church is gathered as the church to hear authoritative teaching from the Word of God. 
That is the assembly. That is the church. And women, according to the Apostle Paul, would not be permitted to stand up and prophesy in that situation. Now, they might very well prophesy to their husband at home, demonstrating proper submission to him and to the Lord. And that husband might then bring that word to the church. But there is a place where women are allowed to speak and encouraged to speak, and there is a place where they are not, and this is all about God restoring or keeping order in the church. 1 Corinthians 14 is all about things being done decently and in order. So there is an order of authority within the Godhead. There's an order of authority between uh, men and women. And there is an order in worship. And God is a God of order. Things work for His glory when we obey Him in this order. Now, we have, we have prayer meetings here, and we encourage women to pray. Because it is not like a woman coming to the pulpit and, and, and making a pastoral prayer for the congregation. It is in a context of a prayer meeting where it is assumed that we will just come before God, we will lay, our, lay out our cares and concerns and, and pray for one another, and it's a, uh, this mutual respect is there, and there is no implication at all of women taking authority over men. At any rate, she can speak to other women, she can preach to other women, deal with children. There is no implication there of, of usurping authority. All right, let's finish here. The practicality of submission. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? In that context, yes. In our context, probably not. This is why Paul says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Well, Paul is referring to some biological facts here. Men tend to lose their hair at a certain time in life, and women don't likely do that, or don't often do that. And women throughout all of history have tended to have long hair. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's, a, it's an expression of femininity. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So I think Paul is saying be practical, examine the situation, make a, a good, wise judgment. If it is proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered, if there is a knowledge and there is a different understanding of, or a different expression of submission, I, I don't see why, why it would be uh, improper. Now this last line here. If, oh, and then about the long hair. Man, I've, I've heard some legalistic preachers. They try to use that as a, as a club to beat anyone over the head who has hair over the length of their collar or something like that. It is not necessarily a shame in our society for a man to have long hair. And long is relative. Like, what's long? It, it changes all the time. But the point that he's making here is when you start to get men and women confused, something's, something's off. When the roles of men and women are reversed, something's off. We really need to consider God's order and not depart from it. And with that knowledge, we can judge for ourselves. We can judge what is appropriate and what is not, what is God-honoring and what is not. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. In other words, if people want to argue about this, um, it's not what we do. I've given you, I've, I've laid it out for you, you judge for yourselves. I, I'm done, like I'm backing off now. This shouldn't be something that you're going to allow someone to make a big deal about it. All right, well, I know that uh, my speech was not altogether fluent today, 
But I hope that even thinking through this passage together and carefully considering what a passage like this that has, seems to have so little to do with us and seems so foreign, at the very core of it, there is this matter of God's order and God's design within marriage, within the church. And there are so many things from this passage that are not first century specific. God's order and his designs for worship, for marriage, those are universal things. The headship of husband, the husband over the wife, that is something that did not expire in the first century. It is still there. And that is culturally difficult for us being raised in the environment we have, but it is biblical. So as we submit to the whole counsel of God, let's uh, consider those things. And just, if you are convicted as a woman, you're convicted in your heart that you should cover your head, I see nothing here for forbidding that. I see nothing forbidding that, if that's a matter of conscience. But I think to insist on it would be applying something out of context, out of Scripture, that need not be implied in our situation. Why does any, any of this matter? Well, it's because there's a real God in heaven who created us in His image and created us to live for His glory. And we rejected that God as a human race in Adam and Eve and everyone following. And He had to send His own Son to bear the penalty of death that we deserve for our sin and that all humanity was under that curse of sin and under the curse of death. Even this whole battle between men and women is because of sin. There was never any argument until sin came into the world. Then, all of a sudden, Eve would be always contending with her husband. That was part of what God said would re, had resulted from sin. But the thing is what Christ did, He came to put things back the way that God meant them to be. Where we have um, a restored relationship between God and man. A restored relationship between men and women. And this will not be complete until we're uh, until redemption, but we bring glory to God when we live the way that He intended us to live in the first place and give Him the glory and, and uh, rather than live for ourselves. So our sin is paid for all of us who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this affects every area of our life. It's a gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. We thank you, Lord, for everyone who has come to hear your word, and I pray that you would help them to understand and to, to test what has been said, to be like the Bereans and test everything that has been said according to, against the scriptures to see if they are true. And Lord, I pray that you'd uh, help us in our, each of us, to recognize that we are all under your headship and to live in reverence of you and of, of the, of the uh, order that you have set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.